Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. This podcast is brought to you by Blockdaemon, the only multi-cloud, multi-geo platform for blockchain nodes. Spin up and manage your nodes today at blockdaemon.com slash unconfirmed. My guest today is Suna Amaz, co-founder and CEO of Token Daily. Welcome, Suna. Thank you. I feel welcomed. You were recently at Crypto Springs. What were some of the big themes from the conference? Um, some of the big themes from the actual talks revolved around decentralization and where we are today, um, the politics around them, uh, themes from the actual conference makeup and uh, the way it was organized um, was overwhelmingly positive. People were excited that uh, companies weren't shilling their own coins and um, it was more about the actual substance. And you also gave a talk there where you and Jackson Palmer looked at are we decentralized yet? And some misleading statistics. What was your main thesis? Uh, right. So uh, that was a fun talk to give. Jackson's always a joy and provides a great, uh, he gives a balanced view and um, really asks the questions that most people either aren't willing to ask because they're so inundated with their own uh, group ideologies. Um, and uh, appreciated doing that with him. So our main thesis for the actual talk was around the politics of decentralization. Are we decentralized enough? What does that mean? And we ultimately come to the conclusion that we are misusing the word decentralization and we aren't as decentralized as a lot of users will have us think. Um, and the reason is that this comes from a lot of pressure from investors. Um, we've conflated decentralization as an end as opposed to a means to an end. And uh, we don't exactly know what we're talking about. We've conceptually stretched it to the point of near meaninglessness. One uh, fun way we went about this was actually displaying uh, misrepresentation of facts and how certain companies illustrate uh, how they're decentralized in a way that really throws off the naive observer or the uninformed user. Um, but to cast the line back a little bit... Um, we start out with simply talking about uh, decentralization from the axes of uh, politics. Um, this isn't new income spilling on the subject, but um, decentralization generally comes in the form of architectural decentralization, and then there's logical decentralization, and then there's political decentralization. So we think of it from an architectural perspective, and um, that's and what answering is that? the question of, uh, right, so like how many databases actually make up this network, right? And then we think about it from a politics perspective perspective, we ask, you know, how many entities actually own those databases? And then we think about it logically, it's, you know, if this network was split in half or whatever the system is that you're looking at, can it still operate individually um, at, at full speed? And that, you know, we see English language as one of those examples or um, 
a sea star that has its like leg cut off and uh, another sea star is able to farm from that. Anyway, um, so uh, so we focus, though, on the uh, political, the politics axes during our talk. All right. And so when you were talking also about some of the misrepresentations, what are some examples? So we decided to take some uh, graphs, some infographics from Ripple and EOS. Um, one of which from Ripple shows, uh, we can walk through it. Uh, there's one side of the actual infographic shows, it explicitly says four mining groups control 58% of Bitcoin. And then you see another pie that shows three mining pools control 57% of Ethereum. And for the last pie, you see Ripple runs only 7% of validators on the XRP ledger. And we began dissecting this by looking at it um, and saying, well, one, you can see the language, like four mining groups control. And then when you look at the pie that describes Ripple, it says only runs only, right? So over there, you already see the bias um, baked into the mechanism. Um, control is a pretty strong word. Um, it'd be more so around concentration. And you don't see the full picture here. And there are a few things you're not seeing. One, you don't see the number of entities within the mining pools, um, and those those entities have the ability to um, switch mining pools, create their own mining pools, um, and you also don't see what the actual unique node list is that Ripple uses. And so we showed another graphic that actually breaks down the validators that are default, and you see that there's 45% dominance um, from uh, Ripple-controlled validators. And... Most people do not know how to customize their own validators or spin up their own. And you also don't see the picture. You, what you're also not getting from this picture is how uh, the verification system around these validators. And that that part is what's centralized. So it makes sense that uh, the marketing team you know, has a job. Right? Ripple's marketing team has a job. And that is to present themselves as this uh, trustless, peer-to-peer, decentralized, you know, insert your favorite synonym of choice. But what we lose in this interpretation, what we lose in these graphs is like, what are you decentralizing for? What is the end you're trying to get to? And that is um, typically, you know, mutability and censorship resistance. And that's not what's depicted in these graphs. Another uh, infographic we walked through was EOS. And um, we walked through what uh, this infographic that the team had put out. Um, I think Dan Lammer had tweeted it out. And it shows 21 block producers, all taking an equal slice of the um, actual uh, of the actual pie. And then you see Ethereum and Bitcoin, and it shows um, that their mining power is skewed. You see top mining pools that control more of the hash rate, um, et cetera. And so here, the presumption, of course, is that EOS is more decentralized and more egalitarian than Ethereum and Bitcoin. And what you aren't seeing in this infographic, and this is something Jackson and I talked about, is that um, DPoS, or Delegated Proof of Stake, doesn't work in a vacuum, right? These block producers, these 21 block producers, 20 of which are voted in, and one of them is randomized, they know each other. It's not anonymous. And um, they have ways of communication, communicating outside the blockchain. And the incentives are structured in such a way that it's actually more lucrative for them to continue voting each other in because they're all going to be getting an equal uh, slice of the inflation rate at the end of every year. So those are the those are the major uh, infographics and major um, misrepresentations we walk through. And just to go back to the Ripple example, the first example, I think it's funny that in the chart they're comparing 
like four groups in Bitcoin against one of Ripple. So, you know, or like three groups in it, it's like not even apples to oranges. Exactly. And that's an excellent point. Um, it actually ends up, uh, having actually, they're actually shooting themselves in the foot by showing one entity, um, and illustrating only one company behind it, even if it is just 7%. And, um, even further than showing like four mining groups versus three mining groups, even within that, like there are hundreds of entities that are within the mining pools as well. Um, it's pretty, pretty misleading. Yeah. I worry also about the everyday people that are reading this stuff and, and, um, purchasing these coins based on this misleading information. And I think what's also unfortunate is that there isn't an explanation as to why the end goal should be why the end goal should be decentralization, right? Um, decentralization at what cost, security at what cost, etc. There's a Goodhart's law, which says that once a metric becomes a target, it ceases to be a good metric. Oh, because people will like game it? Exactly. They oh, game it. And you see this in the cases of academia, um, where, uh, you know, having straight A's should be indicative of how much you're learning. But people will sacrifice that via cheating, et cetera. And we're seeing the same uh, frameworks uh, occur in the cryptocurrency world as well. Um, people are trying to take a slice or cherry pick certain facts to make it look um, as though they are something that they are not. And and it's on and the onus is on us to make sure that we're actually digging deeper, seeing who are the entities behind the actual validators who are the people putting out these infographics who like, what is their intention and um, why are they saying this? And I think we need to go back to those fundamentals and continue asking ourselves these questions. Yeah. Yeah. And my last comment on the EOS thing is that I find it funny that they think they can show this pie chart where everything is like so equally divided and think that that looks like, you know, organic somehow or, you know, cause true decentralized, projects are not going to like look that neat. Like it looks too much like a planned community or like some socialist state or I don't know. Absolutely. Someone who looks at this, their first, their immediate reaction should be suspicion. If something works that perfectly and is that equal, there is some underlying mechanism that is keeping it that way. And there must be some type of collusion. There's like this meta system on top of it that is allowing it to, or that is actually forcing it to, to stay that way. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to keep discussing different issues in the crypto community, including tribalism. But first, a quick word from our fabulous sponsors. Head over to blockdaemon.com slash unconfirmed and come join the decentralized revolution by launching your own blockchain node on a public or private network within minutes. Blockdaemon is the only multi-cloud platform that lets you connect to leading networks such as Bitcoin, Ethereum, and most recently, Stellar and Aeon. Own your node and let us do all the heavy lifting for you by joining today, risk-free for 30 days at blockdaemon.com slash unconfirmed. I'm speaking with Suna Amaz of Token Daily. So in addition to crypto springs and decentralization, I know that tribalism has been on your mind. What about it? Tribalism is pretty contentious issue within this space. Um, recently, we've seen thought pieces come out on the toxicity of tribalism and how tribalism is bad. And I actually don't agree with the statement tribalism is bad. It's more nuanced than 
that. And I think we're approaching it from, we're approaching it as though uh, tribalism is some monolith, um, but there are different people who engage in tribalistic behaviors and there are different objectives and different things that can enable. So um, when I think about tribalism, there are a few things I think about. One is um, tribalism on the side of the operator versus tribalism on the side of the investor. And for an investor, I think it helps to be um, to not be tribal um, and not to give into tribalism. It helps to be aggressively antithesis because a great idea can come from anywhere and you need to be able to decouple your preconceived notions from the actual idea um, or project. But from the operator's perspective, I think it's actually great to be tribal and it's natural to be tribal. And here's why. Tribalism in it of itself, like we are creatures that um, are tribal. We're hardwired to be tribal. We belong to tribes. So there's an evolutionary perspective, obviously. But then secondly, your ability to continue with a project and continue building in the face of bugs and crashes and this deep-seated loyalty to seeing the project to completion or success is necessary and you have to have a sense of tribalism and it's called tribalism when we think of it negatively but it's called community when you want to call it when you want to spin it in a positive light um but that's necessary to keep going in spite another reason tribalism is I'd argue is good is because um, when other teams or when other tribes are disparaging your project or trying to pick it apart, it doesn't seem as obvious, but they're actually doing the work for you, right? They're finding imperfections. They're actually showing you how to, it depends on if you can signal the, you know, the noise from, from the actual, uh, from the actual actionable things to do, but they're actually doing the work for you. They're showing you where the potholes are and they're showing you how to fix it and your ability to look beyond, you know, charged comments, et cetera, and actually focus on what's being said and what can actually be used to improve your project helps. Where tribalism becomes a problem is when actual communication breaks down and we lose the common calm wheel. And I think that when people say tribalism is bad, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about um, attacks on people's character, um, acting in malicious ways to bring people down as opposed to tribalism as they, as it relates to actual projects. And I think that distinction is important to make. And, 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 you know, there's, and there's several ways to go about it. I think there's ways we can be better about, um, about the way that tribalism is expressed. Um, one amazing story. I, I love to repeat this and I, I just, it, I think it is one of the, peak moments in the Bitcoin, Bitcoin cash, uh, clash, um, was that of Corey Fields who had found an ex, oh, right. yeah, right. Who'd, uh, found a bug within Bitcoin cash. And he actually faced a conundrum because if he, you know, made it apparent or revealed that there was an exploit, he risked his life, um, because someone else could exploit the bug, um, or presume that he was exploiting it. And, you know, people have been killed over a lot, a lot less money. So he took his, he took a moment and he asked himself, you know, if a Bitcoin cash developer had discovered this within Bitcoin core, would I want them to report it? And, um, with that answer, uh, yes, uh, he, he went on and, um, found an anonymous way to report it. And I think that shows this ability to continue like open lines of communication to rise above these, uh, to rise to actually like focus on the actual projects and development of the space and to rise above toxic behaviors or malicious intent, which is what people um, don't 
which is what people actually are talking about when they think, when they say tribalism is bad. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I also want to go back to your point about how your critics can make your project better because I do feel like hilariously, you know, we just mentioned the XRP, the Ripple post. They know that the fact that they're not decentralized is one of the main reasons that they could be considered an unregistered security. And so I feel like in the last few months, once that critique has taken hold, now they're like trying to do all these things to show they're not centralized, which is why I think they make posts like that. Cause that's a recent post, right? Absolutely. Yes. And so who knows, maybe they could, but I, why didn't an episode of, of Unchained on XRP. And at that time when I researched it, literally 0.2% of the top 20 contributors were uh, in terms of the code they contributed were non XRP, non ripple people. Wow. And, and the other 99.8% was contributed by ripple people. So <laughs> I don't know. They have a long way to go, but I do agree with you on that point. I also, Oh, oh keep I was going. Just saying, and that brings up a great point. Um, and it's another thing I think about often is, you are, it seems as though you're always starting off with some very centralized point. And the, the difficulty a lot of these projects face is they're trying to create an app or create a project, right? That already comes with its host of difficulties and challenges, right? Um, usability, user growth, um, security, et cetera. And at the same time, go from zero to hundred percent decentralization in one swing. And Allowing projects to become decentralized over time, I think is important and understanding these aren't going to happen in one, it's not going to happen instantaneously is another, another important thing, but, but progress needs to be made on that front as well. Yeah, no, I totally agree that it's a process. This was something actually that came up when I did a special episode at Singularity University and Galia um, Benarzi of Bancor was on the panel. And this was shortly after they had had that issue with those coins being stolen. And they, um, she said like, look, we're going through this process. So it probably depends on where you sit, like how quickly you want the process to go. Um, but then one other thing I wanted to say was just earlier when you were talking about the, the Bitcoin, Bitcoin cash incident with the, the bug in that sense, that was one moment where the tribalism turned from like, with it like inter tribe tribalism mm-hmm. to okay we're all part of this crypto tribe and then there's like the non crypto people uh because in that sense i feel like there was a recognition that the space is really young and this could be catastrophic for the entire crypto industry so in that regard they you know kind of took that view absolutely. but were you going to add something else absolutely there's this deep seated loyalty to seeing the actual space continue as a whole. And there is a difference between intergroup tribalism and intragroup tribalism. Um, you want to make sure not to succumb to groupthink, and you also want to make sure that you are receiving pushback. And I think the importance of that story is it illuminates the importance of communication as well. Keeping communication open and being tough but fair and having empathy, I think, is what needs to be reiterated um, as we think about uh, tribalism in this space. I love the Bancor example as it relates to uh, decentralization, taking a quick conversation detour. Um, And I think the reason that the Bancor team faced backlash, even though it's, it was prudent to have a kill switch is because they initially marketed themselves as a DEX or said decentralized. And Mm -hmm. I think 
it introduces this binary where you're either decentralized or you're not, right? right? And so that came more from perhaps people feeling duped, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to um, actually being upset that there was a prudent decision made to have a kill switch that saved people money, right? Right. Yeah, yeah I did also discuss the kill switch issue with Joey Krug on, I forget if it, I think that might have been on Unchained. But anyway, well, we're running out of time, but the last thing I just wanted to mention was on this tribalism note, I feel like we're seeing this example of not the inter uh, or not the intra group tribalism, but the crypto non crypto tribalism today with this Senate hearing, um, which centered on cryptocurrency and featured Nuriel, Nuriel Rubini of NYU and Peter Van Valkenburg of Coin Center. What do you see Noriel tweeting and saying, and what did you think of what he said, and what else are you seeing people saying about it? I a, a few amazing tweets have come from this. Like today is one of crypto Twitter's uh, shining moments. Uh, I love Linda's tweet on how um, Linda Shea Linda Shea's tweet exactly about how she's enjoying this brief moment where the crypto community is united against Noriel's ridiculous tweets. Um, it seems as though he's stringing along a lot of buzzwords and he has said you know vaporware i believe he called lightning vaporware at some point but of course elizabeth stark combated that with um examples of all these projects that are functioning right. um, on lightning and of course lightning itself and um and i think nick carter uh also mentioned that he should have just given him some FUD dice because a lot of what he's echoing right now during his testimony is what is actually written on the FUD dice. It's vaporware. It's never going to work. Um, they don't have KYC, et cetera. And um, it seems we've gotten all the all the anticipated and known arguments against cryptocurrency community um, coming from one one person. It's been a great unifying force for all of us today. Yeah, something that was funny to me was I I listened to that or I yeah I listened to the testimony, and I realized I didn't disagree with him in the sense like he was stating a lot of factual things like, oh you know it only does this many transactions and you know he was talking about the scaling problems and stuff, but while we can agree on the facts like the conclusion is just different because I look at those things and I'm like oh yeah it's like any new technology like it doesn't work super well in the beginning but like you could have criticized the internet back in the day and been like oh it like doesn't work well. But he concludes, like, it's never going to advance beyond this. And I'm like, have you looked at the history of human technology at all? Because, like, so many things start off kind of janky like this and then end up, you know, changing everything. So, I mean, which is not to say that will happen here. But I personally, like, if I had to bet money, I would bet that, like, they will probably resolve these issues. There's, like, way too many people working on all this stuff for it to, like, stay bad forever. So it was just, like, a funny moment where I was like... I think you're going to like regret this the way that Paul Krugman regrets like saying the internet is going to be like the fax machine. Absolutely. So there are two la- final things I'll say on Rubini's testimony. One is, you know, he gets his nickname Dr. Doom for calling the financial crisis. And like you said, this is a technology, right? So he's trying to leverage um, his calling out this uh, fall in the financial system. Um, to uh, and uh, applying it to a technology and actual technological inv- advancements, which I think is um, incredibly uh, audacious. And um, the second thing I'll say is we are in the A around A with a ring around it era. And what I mean by that is um, 
There's this Today Show clip that surfaced from 94 um, recently. It's, it's, it's gone viral. And it's, it's about uh, these news anchors talking about the internet and trying to describe it and really giving it a name. And at one point, they bring up the at symbol. And one of the news anchors says, yeah, it's this A with a ring around it. I'm not really sure. Is it about? Is it at? So funny. And that's where we are. And, um, you know, would we have been able to predict Netflix in 1994? Right. I think so. Yeah. Well, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks so much for coming on Unconfirmed. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the topics we discussed, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast episode. New episodes of Unconfirmed come out every Friday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you like this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Raylene Bellapalli, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, and Daniel Muss. Thanks for listening.